morning. Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now, don't lie to them like you did last week. Mean it this time. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. I actually believe he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about we wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And what that means is you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can borrow one of ours. Just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get a Bible to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible and that's a gift to you. And we pray that you take that and read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. Three of you think that? Every time you read the Bible, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's meet with Jesus this morning. I want you to turn uh, in your Bible to the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. So I want you to turn there. You can find it very easily. And I want you to turn to the last chapter of Genesis and look at somebody and say, we're, we're done with Genesis. I thought that was going to take 27 years. And uh, we've been in this series for probably uh, eight or nine months. And uh, this morning is our last uh, sermon in Genesis, uh, this series that we've entitled Good News from the Start. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 15. And if you're watching on the online campus, we are so thankful that you are joining with us. I know many use this as a supplemental way to gather together. Maybe you're sick. I know some of you are at home because you're recovering. And we just say uh, that you are welcome and we love you. And we're so glad uh, that you are with us this morning. It doesn't matter where you gather or when you gather. It matters that you gather. Amen. Because the church is the gathering of the people of God. The Lompoc campus is, is uh, doing their own thing this morning as uh, five people were baptized at the Lompoc campus this morning. How incredible. Pastor Tyler's preaching there live this morning. Uh, I, I just give you a little bit of update before I read and pray. I thought we were going to have a guest worship leader this morning, uh, Jared, but his wife uh, had an emergency uh, medical situation last night. And so we had to kind of rearrange. So Becca, thank you so much for leading that. How amazing is Becca and Tyler to our church? <clears throat> We were just able to, uh, yesterday evening as we got word that we were waiting for them to get here and the emergency happened. And so we're praying for them. We're going to pray for her. She's doing uh, fine and she's recovering, uh, but it did change our plans for this morning. And so, uh, but how amazing was it? Those who made a decision to follow Jesus through the waters of baptism, you know, <laughs> amen. Baptism is not saying that you're perfect. It's saying that you're following the one who is 
perfect. And so maybe like this uh, water baptism was a new thing for you. Maybe you came in and you're like, what are they doing with a horse trough on stage? And, uh, and then maybe you're a part of church. You grew up in the church and, and sometimes before water baptism, they would hand somebody a microphone and, and they, and they would say something, they would give their testimony. One of the reasons why we started doing something a little different is to kind of connect it to the authenticity of the story that would have happened in the first century. People would have been wading in the waters of baptism. John the Baptist would have been baptizing. There would have been a crowd of people and there wouldn't have been a microphone. And you would have, the, the crowds would have asked questions. It would have been puzzling. What are they doing and why are they doing it? And you'd see someone wading in the waters of baptism and maybe they would come up to you and go, hey, why are you doing this? And then they would get to tell them a story about Jesus. Amen. And so years ago, people would ask, hey, why don't you say their names? We don't know their names. And, and if that was this morning, you said, man, I, I don't, who is that? Go ask them. You say, it's as simple as saying, hey, uh, what's your name? Uh, why did you do that? And then let them tell you a Jesus story. See, that's the idea is that it's a way of building community. It's also a starter way to give your testimony in a personal way rather than us just cheering as a church, maybe the person who needs to know that story is someone who is questioning, why in the world would you do something like that? And the Bible says, uh, when people ask, when they see you have hope, when they see something different, they see something strange and peculiar. And can I tell you that getting on stage in front of a, a couple hundred people and being baptized in a, a horse trough is strange. It's peculiar. And when you do that, be ready when someone asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so I'm so thankful for those who made that decision. And maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you were jumping. I saw some of you, you were ready to, to run up on stage. And can I say, you should have done it, friend. And the water's still here. And if at the end of the service, you can say, hey, that's my story. Or maybe it's next week. Maybe it's next month. Maybe you said the next time they're going to do it. Maybe, maybe you keep saying every time you see it, you go, man, the next time. And so uh, let me encourage you uh, that you can never quite be ready for baptism. Amen. Uh, it's not about you getting yourself ready. It's about you trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. And so if that's been your conversation, let me, let me, just, uh, let me just follow the, the spirit of God for just a moment and speak to your heart and go, hey, I think it's time for you to tell the world that you're following Jesus. Amen. Amen. Look at Genesis chapter 50. Uh, starting in verse 15, <clears throat> it says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God <clears throat> of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came to him and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, and I want you to put an underline in this passage, put an asterisk beside of it. This is a statement that essentially sums up the entire book of Genesis. Do not fear, Joseph says this, for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let me say it again. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be saved. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace over the next few moments that we would consider, we would ponder this passage, this text that you've left for us. Help us see the big picture. Help us see the story that you're writing. We ask for your grace today. Let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said... I mean, maybe you're here last week and, and, or maybe you're a Bible baby or a Feltmore kid, but for those who weren't here last week, you don't know the story. Let me just give you a quick summary of the life of Joseph. So you can, you can kind of have some context for where we are at Jacob whose name would later be changed to Israel, had 12 sons, one of them being Joseph. Joseph was born to Jacob's wife, Rachel, and he loved Rachel. And uh, Joseph became a favorite of him, and he bore, uh, he had uh, uh, Joseph, and Rachel bore Joseph when Jacob was old, and he had a soft spot for Joseph, and he loved him. He gave him a coat made of many colors. And that particular day to, to make this type of fabric w- would be so expensive and so time consuming. And, and so when we read that, man, God gave Joseph a coat of many colors. You have, you have to be, man, he gave him the letterman's jacket, man. He gave him the family heirloom. He gave him something that would set him apart from all of his brothers. Jealousy ensues from his brothers and Joseph's a bit of a dreamer and Joseph can't keep his mouth shut about all the dreams that he has. Have you ever met those people, right? Okay, bud, I know you're going to change the world, but keep it to yourself, right? And yet Joseph has some issues with his character at the moment. He's boastful and he's a little arrogant. Maybe he understands that God has a special place and call for him, but how he goes about it is completely wrong and yet it doesn't make what his brothers did to him justified but man they grow and evil sets in the heart of his brothers how uh, how much drama how much uh, issues would you have to have to plot against your brother and so they plot against him and they actually plot to kill him but one of one of the brothers Reuben actually uh, talks them out of killing him and and just decides to put him in a pit for the day but then a caravan comes by that's going to Egypt and they sell their brother into slavery Reuben comes back distraught thought he had spared the life of Joseph he was going to sneak and take Joseph back to their father but now he's sold into slavery and they keep it under wraps they slaughter an animal they put blood on the coat they bring it back to Jacob and they tell Jacob that Joseph was killed by a wild animal and they keep this under wraps. Talk about a family secret. Talk about uh, looking at Thanksgiving around the room and you better not tell this year. Hey, you're looking a little guilty this year. You don't tell mom. You don't tell dad. You know what it would do to them. Talk about the guilt. Talk about the weight of sin. Such a grievous weight of sin. 
They carry this for years to come. Joseph's story goes on. Joseph finds himself as he's a hard worker. God builds integrity in him. The character he lacked was the character he gained through the suffering that would shape him into the man that he would become. And listen, men, you gotta understand that sometimes it's the hard points in life that make you sharper, amen? Because it's iron sharpening iron as one man sharpens another. That's a plug for our ironwork on Thursday. You need to be here. Amen. And so it shapes him into who he's going to be. He finds himself, even as a slave, a better worker and, 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 and wiser than the others. And a man by the name of Potiphar makes Joseph second command to his house, but then uh, Potiphar's not the only one who had an eye for Joseph. So did Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife lures Joseph into her bedroom. And Joseph says, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to defile you. And I, I'm not going to sin against Potiphar. And he runs out and he gets uh, falsely accused of taking advantage of Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar throws him into prison. He spends years in prison. Can you imagine being sold into slavery? And then all of a sudden you find yourself uh, better off. You find, man, finally things are working out. I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself in charge. And then all of a sudden accusation and falsely accused. He finds himself in prison for years. Man, you could, you could find that that would make you bitter and treat other people. You begin to look around the prison and go, man, I, I'm different than you boys. I'm innocent. Maybe he feels elevated in his stature, but actually he begins to care for fellow inmates. They have dreams. Some of them are falsely accused. Some of them, a baker and a butler who's been thrown in there because those who are in Egypt, uh, uh, they didn't quite live up to their standards. So they begin to imprison those who didn't live up to the standard that they have. Could you imagine a tyrannical government like this one? It's hard to imagine with the freedoms that we have, but this is what it was like to, to live under the regime of Egypt and a Pharaoh. And yet he cares for those he's with, it teaches us a lesson that we don't know anybody else's story that sometimes we, we begin to look at ourselves and we begin to elevate ourselves. Joseph, who has every reason to be bitter, every reason to justify his actions and his sins against others, he doesn't do that, but he takes an opportunity to serve. He begins to interpret the dreams of fellow prisoners. They find themselves uh, out of prison once they're out and rumor gets back to Pharaoh that there's a man locked up in prison who can interpret dreams. Pharaoh at this particular time is riddle God begins to give Pharaoh dreams and he's riddled he's up at night and somehow rumor reputation because of his characters who we talked about this right what I what I think and what I say becomes what I do and what I do becomes my habits what I do habitually and what I do habitually what I uh, what I do often all the time becomes what I'm known for friends you have to be careful what you're known for you have to ask the question man we don't live for people but we allow our reputation and ultimately we want that reputation our story to be marked by the story of Jesus that people will seek us out no matter what the rumors are no matter what the reputation is that our character will bust through we I quoted this to you last week first Peter 2 15 says it is the will of God that by doing good you will put to silence the mouths of fools 
That's the King James version. It hits much harder. You wouldn't believe how many people text me this week. Hey, what was that King James version? Uh, what, what, what was that? And, and, and that's, that's what happens with Joseph. He just keeps doing good. And what can they say about you? If you keep doing good, listen, friend, it's your job. You got coworkers. They get jealous when you work hard and they don't. And, and you're out running them. They're saying, hey, let's keep the quota down. Let, let's not run ahead of one another. Let's keep, keep things copacetic between us. When you feel like people from the community, because of what you believe, because you're a Bible-believing Christian, what they say about you, and they, they say you're this and you're that. And listen, friends, liars use labels because they can't deal with the reality of truth. And so it doesn't matter what the label is on you, it will fall off quickly when your character begins to stand the test of time, amen? And so pray to God to give you strength to endure, strength to be courageous and have good character and good integrity. That you keep that, you hold, and, you, and that starts with your thought life and what you say and what you do. Joseph finds himself uh, now in front of Pharaoh and he interprets his dream. And this interpretation of this dream actually is the very thing that saves the entire region. He interprets a dream about a famine that's coming. And Joseph begins to tell him, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have this famine, but here's what I want you to do. You're going to have, you're going to have uh, three and a half years of plenty and you have three and a half years of famine. So here's what we'll do. We'll ration and we'll take all of this. We'll put it in storehouses. And so we'll have plenty during the time. We won't just squander what we have now, not thinking about what we'll need later. Let me just tell you that that's going to be a tweetable moment for you later. Okay, friends, that's pretty good. Let me, let me back up and say it again, that you don't squander what you have now because you might need it as, as the prophet Dave Ramsey says, uh, live like no one else today so that tomorrow you can live like no one else. This is the, the kingdom principle of stewardship. This is one of the first places we see this. We see that it's not just using what you have because you have it, but actually looking at how can I use this for the betterment of others, not just for what I have for myself, but how can I put aside knowing that things won't always be this way, that there are ups and downs and there's hills and valleys and there's feast and famine, there's seasons. And so I need to be careful that I, that I don't in a moment of feasting become indulgent and over consuming. And then I'm not ready and prepared for famine. He gives these, the interpretation of these dreams and this is the very thing that saves the region. Now he's second in command because of his work. He's second in command to Pharaoh. And, and now the famine has hit where his brothers and his family live. And they're beginning to go, we need to go to the city. We need to go to Egypt. And we need to find food there. But they have no idea that their brother has made it to second in command of all of Egypt. And when they get there, Joseph looks much different. He was a young boy, now he's a man. They don't recognize him and they don't recognize him in his Egyptian style and culture. And they come and Joseph brings them in, has a meal for them. They, don't, they wonder why, why is this person doing this for us? And then finally Joseph at the banquet reveals to them that I'm your brother that you sold into slavery. They fear for their lives, but he forgives them. 
He sends word back and brings their father back to them. He reunites the entire family and he begins to care for them. For years and years and years, they lived together. And Joseph, even though was sold by his brothers, betrayed by those closest to him, now is the one caring for them. But maybe the brothers are beginning to think, there's no way that grace and forgiveness from my brother could be this good. He's doing it for the sake of our father. And here's where we find ourselves in Genesis 50, verse 15. It says that Jacob died. And the brothers go, oh, we think that's the thing that was holding him back. And they go, no, 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 let's make up a story that the last wishes of our father was that Joseph would forgive us. Their sin is so great. They know the evil they've done against him. And they know in their mind it would be justified if Joseph actually took their lives. And yet... Joseph makes this powerful statement. He says, when the brothers come to him, am I in the place of God? What a, what a perspective. What a changing. See, sometimes we get caught in our perspective and we begin to look out and we begin to become judge and jury based on our own moral stature. Can I tell you that if you're honest with yourself and if you actually believe the Bible, that the Bible says that our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Like if we could take the currency, if we could take the material, if our righteousness, our good works could measure up and we could actually quantify it, it would be like a pile of filthy rags. Let me give you some homework. Go home and study what that word in the Greek means and filthy rags. I'll spare you the details. And yet this is, what it says, now take those rags and try to trade it for goodness. Try to take what you have and trade it for something else that's better. That's what essentially he's saying. But then you, you think, man, what about Joseph? I mean, Joseph was a good man sold into slavery. Man, can you imagine? Surely he has justification against his brothers. And see, this is where the gospel begins to take hold of our hearts. See, the story of Genesis throughout the entire book that we've been learning from the very start in the garden is the problem all starts. God gives goodness. He bestows on his creation all that they could ever want. The moment things go awry, the moment things hit the fan is when man decides that he should be in the place of God. The whole story starts in the first part of Genesis, in Genesis 2 and 3. And now we are here in 50. And we see that the whole theme all the way through of Genesis, every single time, is man trying to play God. The opening story is, man, go, I get to decide what's right and wrong on my own. God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me, have, let me give, give you some perspective here. Listen, Adam and Eve already knew what was good. Remember at the end of day one, he said it was? End of day two? <laughs> he said, hold on a second. Woman, wow. Really good, right? The, the, the pinnacle of all creation, ladies, his last and final act. 
woman. Right? And the fellow said, hey, man, how you doing? You know? Right? They knew what was good, and yet they longed to know what is evil. They longed to decide on their own. They get to decide right and wrong. That's essentially the story, is deciding. We get to decide based on our position and our morality and our stature in which we have none. We are endowed by our creator with rights that cannot be removed. And those rights are not decided amongst each other on what is righteous to do. That's why we have the bill of rights and the words that we use. It comes from a transcendent creator who's outside of this, who bestows on us rights, what is righteous what's right in the behavior we have towards one another. And we don't get to decide that. It's written that way to say, no, 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 no. People don't get to have a committee and decide what that is. God has decided what that is. And you don't get to argue with what's right and wrong concerning human beings. And that's, that's the idea of this moral law and this moral code. The atheist who says there is no God, where did we get these codes Where do we get these laws? Where do we get the laws of nature? How do we know in a sense that just ain't right? I, you ought not do that. There's some things that transcend culture and law where you go, no, no, this is wrong. This is never okay. And where did that come from? Because there's a transcendent God who shows us. And then the story goes on. Man is riddled with the question, of right and wrong, good and evil. Man is riddled with his own sinfulness. He falls, is in a fallen state. And the story of Genesis goes on and the story shows us over and over again that even with God's blessing, even with God giving grace, even with God uh, bringing about promises of goodness, man continues on his descent and his folly. Man, friends, what Genesis should tell you is that you're in good company. You ever find yourself, man, sometimes it's good and then sometimes you're not. But if you were honest with yourself, sometimes the same things you're frustrated with the world around you, if you were to zoom in on the things in you, the very things that need to be removed from you. And the story of Genesis goes on. And yet you'll wrestle with, well, what about the good ones? What about the ones who are victims? What about the ones who've been oppressed? Man, aren't they now the ones who are to be judge and jury? What you'll find throughout human history that if you, even those who who begin to be liberated out of their oppression, you can change the authority scheme and man is still a man and he will begin to oppress even after he is liberated. There's something wrong. There's, there's a software glitch in the heart. There needs to be an update. There needs to be a resurrection. There needs to be something that changes from the inside out because laws cannot legislate the heart. There needs to be a reboot, a rebirth. 
There needs to be a born again life, a resurrection from the inside out. Genesis has been telling us and even shows us and puts on display this one man, Joseph, who would be oppressed. This one man, Joseph of man, if you're talking about a story, man, that goes wrong. It's Joseph's story. If you're talking about a story where now he's got some right, now he has some justification to take out vengeance. Now, yeah, 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 Pastor Sam, I know you're telling me that the Bible says forgiveness. I know you're telling me that the Bible says love and God has bestowed grace so then we give grace, but you don't know my story. It's like, do you know Joseph's story? About as bad as it gets. And yet, confronted with his oppressors, confronted with not just his oppressors that are distant and, and scheming because of their greed, he's talking about his brothers. Man, talk about betrayal. But then he says this, he says, I, am I in the place, am I in the place of God? Even in his affliction, even being the, the one who's been oppressed, he has to wrestle with the question, am I capable of deeming down judgment? Am I capable? It's a rhetorical question to his brother. Am I in the place of God? Who am I? The Bible says it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. Understanding that first and foremost, he's God and you're not. And that's good news. So you go, man, how could, how could Joseph forgive his brothers? Well, he believed God and he believed that God is good. See, if you're gonna make it in the story that God is writing, and I'm so convinced that the story God is writing is so much bigger than the page that you're living on. And they could be a difficult page, and you could say, people don't understand my page, but I can tell you who does understand your page. I can't, I can't identify with you and I can't be empathetic with you, but I can tell you that there is a God who knows your story. And I can tell you that this God is good. And that's the first thing that you have to settle in your mind. There's a couple of things that you got to wrestle with. If you're going to go, man, I wish I was like that. Pastor, I, I, I don't know, man. Like he forgives his brothers and it says, man, yeah, just, I can't forgive my, my brother. I'm holding against my father. You don't know my mother, Pastor Sam. You, you don't know what my business partner did to me. You don't, you don't, you don't understand. No, I don't. But he does. And so if you're going to make it through it, like if, like if you're gonna get beyond that, if you're gonna actually have the supernatural power of God in you that forgives and writes a different story, the first thing that you have to settle in your mind is that God is good. God is good all the time. He's good and he's God. So you have to wrestle with his sovereignty See, when I say that God, God, I am implying that he is God. He's, he's sovereign. He's in control. He's the one writing the story. The Bible says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And, and, and so you have to wrestle with the reality of God. God is in control. And then you have to come to grips with and believe in your heart that he is indeed good. See, that's what Joseph did. He says, I, am I in the place of God? For as for you, 
you meant for me evil, but God meant it for good. Could you imagine? Like so many of us get trapped in the story. We know the story. We, get, we can get in the middle of it and you go, God, why me? Why this moment? What are you doing to me? And we forget that it's, this, that it's our suffering that shapes us. If you ask someone who's followed Jesus, who that you, you, you believe that they're a person of good character, integrity, they'll, they won't tell you a good story. They'll tell you a difficult story. They'll tell you about cancer. They'll tell you about divorce. They'll tell you about betrayal. They'll tell you about being poor. They'll tell you about being sick. And then they'll tell you how God's grace carried them through. That's what they'll tell you. Joseph says, as for you, here's the second thing that you're gonna have to come to grips with if you're gonna make it through the story, is that man has fallen. That man is not the way he ought to be. Have you, have you ever thought about that, right? Like, like, like you, you look, you go, man, that just, just ain't right. They ought not, do you ever said that? They ought not do that. Right, so you're just, the world's going to hell. Right? Like, oh gosh, I can't believe they're doing that. They're doing that over there. You believe that? See, here's what Ephesians says, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked. And you too walked this way. The first thing you have to realize is man has fallen. And because he has fallen, he's been removed from his life source. That is the presence and power of God. He has fallen away, and now in his current state, he is dead. And so when we talk about life and death, it, it is far bigger. It is not merely existence. It's not merely flesh and blood. There's something more. There's purpose to it. There's direction. There's flow. And man as a whole has fallen from the presence of God that is his life. And now he is like the walking dead. You realize Hollywood did not come up with the idea of zombies at the walking dead. So don't be offended when dead people do dead things. When zombies act like zombies, when they consume one another, when all they think about what can go into the mouth, but out the gut, they never get their feel. Taking whatever they can have, greed and lust and power and control, they can never get enough because they have no ability to be filled. They are the walking dead. You too were once that way. But in God's mercy, Ephesians 2 tells me, in his grace, he made us alive. And he seated us in heavenly places as if, like Joseph, we have been seated to a different seat of authority. Well, let me say that again. Like Joseph, now we've been seated in heavenly places. We've been put in a position that's different. The authority to speak life, the authority to give love, the authority to forgive and not hold against. Authority, and with that authority, According to Spider-Man, <laughs> technically his uncle, comes great responsibility. And so the authority of a Christian is not in that I sit in my place of judgment, but that I wrestle with I am not God. Like Joseph, I begin to say, no, am I in the place of God? 
When, when, when you're scrolling and when you're looking and when you're judging, you go, you, you have to wrestle with, am I in the place of God? And I too once was dead in my trespasses and sin in which I walked following the patterns of this world by nature being children of wrath. But God in his great mercy has made us alive for by grace you have been saved. Grace means unmerited, undeserved favor. What Joseph was giving his brothers was not deserved. It was not merited. What they merited was death. And what he gave them was life. This is the picture. This is in Genesis, friend. This isn't your, your idea that there's an Old Testament God and then there's a New Testament God. The Bible shows us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A God from the beginning that is for your good. And he shows us that man has fallen from him and that we need desperately to be reunited with him in order to have the life that he gives. If you're going to make it through the story, you have to understand God is good, man is fallen, and today is the day of salvation. If you're going to make it through the story that God's writing through your life and through all of human history, you've got to realize he's good, you're not, and today everything can change. You go, Pastor, that's a biblical story. That's a a story that's so distant. I can't wrap my head around that story. Let me tell you. A recent story. Let me tell you a story of five missionaries led by a man named Jim Elliott in the 1950s. Many of you may remember this story. Some of you might be familiar. Maybe some of you forgot. Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador. And there was a, a tribe, the Waori tribe that was an untouched people group that was marked by violence, not just of other tribes, but even of themselves, that they had a 60% mortality rate. That a child born in the Waiobi tribe would only live to 30 years old at tops. Jim and four of his friends, one of them being a pilot, freshly out of World War II and learned to fly in the Navy, joins him in his efforts to reach this unreached tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. They developed a method of of how they would fly in tight circles over this particular tribe in order to lower packages to begin to create goodwill with the tribe. They would fly in a tight circle which would keep the package almost perfectly still as they would lower it down into the jungle and they begin to wave. They begin to learn the language of the Wyobi. They would begin over a loudspeaker to say things of peace and grace to them in their native language. This happened for months. They would lower packages and gifts. Can you imagine that tribe looking up to the heavens, seeing an airplane, and all of a sudden things falling from the sky? I wish Elon Musk would drop something over my house the next time he flies by. (laughs) You can imagine what that would be like. Months and months and months, and close by on the riverbank, they would set up camp there. It felt like it was time to, to go meet the tribe. 
And so they, they, they said, we're going to set up camp. And in their native language, they invited them to come to their camp. Inside of the tribe, there was, uh, there was individuals, uh, leaders of the tribe who were adamant that they were not to go. And a young girl decided she wanted to go. And a boy who was sweet on her goes, I'll go. And then they gave them a guide. And they went and made contact with Jim and the four other men. And they gave them gifts and they talked with them. Sent them back a couple more times. They came to me, but once the, the older lady who was with them as their guide and chaperone was not with them. And they found out that the young girl and boy had met the men on the bank when they were not supposed to. And so they set out a plot. They grabbed arms. They sent some of the other women to distract them on one side of the bank as warriors in the tribe would flank them on the other side. Jim and his four friends stood on the bank as they began to see them thinking that they were finally making contact, that they were finally going to see them and everything would change. What they were met with was not compassion and love and fellowship. They were met with the tip of a spear. Those men would die on the banks of that river that day. Their plane would be ransacked and destroyed. The wives, newlyweds of these four, these five men, when they didn't come in on the CB on the time they were supposed to, they became worried. The U.S. government sent out a plane in order to recover, rescue at best, or at, at hopes, recover at best, these men. Days later, they would find four of the men's bodies, the plane ransacked. I think it was the cover of Time Magazine would put these men's faces and talk about their efforts in Ecuador. Man, if you heard that story, a week after it happened, you go, God, why? Maybe a month, you go, I don't understand it, God. They were trying to do your work. And they were met with the end of the spear. You can actually watch a movie called The End of the Spear on this particular story. It came out maybe 10 years ago. Now looking back, if you were to watch that movie, you would get a picture of the whole story. A book that was written by Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth I Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, called Through the Gates of Splendor. And what you would learn is Elizabeth and one of the men's aunts, Rachel, would actually continue to make contact with the tribe that killed her husband. She would later go live with the tribe. And one by one, each of these tribe members would convert to Christianity. Each member, even those who were responsible for those men's deaths. Later, the son of one of the men would be baptized by one of the tribe members who killed his father. What you'd realize later is that through this tragic story, 
Hundreds and hundreds of people have been inspired to be missionaries all over the world because of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott would talk and give speeches, say, man, you got to join me. And, and, and there's rumors that he, he would write in his diary, God, give me a team, inspire men who are courageous and full of fire to join me in these jungles. Barely getting four men to join him now through his death, hundreds and hundreds of men countless men and women have gone overseas reaching unreached people group to a tribe of people who would later that entire tribe would be converted to Christianity because they believed that God was good in spite of what they were seeing and they believed that those men were fallen and that they were dead in their trespasses and sin and like Jesus they said forgive them for they know not what they are doing And they believed that right then, right there was the day of salvation, that God could change everything, that the story God is writing is bigger than the page that we're living on. Jim Elliott is famously quoted for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What's it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Jim Elliot believed that he could give everything in this life and gain eternal life. See, friends, when you're right in the middle of the story, you can't see the big, beautiful picture that God's writing. Sometimes it might be a week, might be a month, it might be 50, 60 years later, people tell the story about what happens, but you have to believe that in your circumstance right now, God is good. And the people who've offended you and hurt you and brought cause against you, they're fallen, they're broken. They've been, they've been deceived and they're a slave to their sinful nature. And you too once lived that way. But you remember when God changed you and saved you and put your feet on a solid rock. And God uses the difficult circumstances. God can take what the enemy meant for evil. See, it's our suffering that shapes us, but it's his suffering that saves us. Here's our hope. Our hope is that in the middle of our story, we realize that God is not absent from our story, but God entered into our place. The most tragic of stories, the crucifixion of our gracious and loving savior. But he didn't stay dead, friends. He rose on the third day and he offers his resurrection life to us that our story can be connected to his story. Man, it's a powerful thing to realize that the whole story of humanity is this, man trying to be in the place of God. But the good news of the gospel is God in man's place. 
When we've been trying to, to be in God's place, we've been trying to be judge and jury, we've been trying to make it happen in our home. Here's the good news, friend. God has come in your place and he offers his life in exchange. That means he can write a better story. That means he can take all the pain and all the circumstances. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil. The enemy means evil, but God meant it for good. Here's my prayer for you today. My prayer is that whatever you're facing, whatever circumstances that are a part of your story, you're able to see beyond the page because the story God is writing is bigger than the page you're living on. And he can take pain and difficulty and he can turn it into purpose. He can use it to change someone else's story. I'm praying strength for the page. I'm praying that you can see that all of your past wasn't for naught, but it was for purpose. And God's going to use it. Amen. Let me pray with you. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. We praise you. I know there's so many in here today, Jesus, that, man, their stories have been riddled with circumstance and difficulty, but I pray that you would help them to see it, that the enemy meant it for evil, but God's going to use it for good. I pray that you take all of the mess and you use it as a message of hope and grace and peace to the world around us. I thank you that uh, throughout the book of Genesis, we've realized that the story of man is when man tries to be in the place of God, we fail. But when we allow you to take our place, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Not us trying to make our way to God, but you have come to us and you change us and you mold us and you use us for your glory and the good of others. We thank you. We praise you. I pray for strength. Those in here today may be facing difficult circumstances. I pray for strength and peace to endure the page because the story you're writing is big and it's good. We thank you. We praise you for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise? <laughs>